chapter 1. This is not going to be a Mother's Day sermon. So just warning you. Don't make any connection in your mind at all. It's just, it's the next verse. And it's a difficult section to preach on. I actually um, read a sermon, a commentary that was developed out of sermons written in the 1950s, and I was really curious as to what somebody would say on this subject back then. And uh, it was discussed, and it was discussed openly, and it was, um, things were happening in our culture in the 50s that were already presaging what has come upon us, which is quite interesting. I'm not going to get into that this morning, that part of it, but it was interesting to read that. So um, as difficult as as this subject is, it's appropriate to talk about because it's um, very relevant, especially today. But let's start with prayer before we even get into this. Father, we just ask you to uh, humble our hearts before the word, Lord, that um, we would have a, an understanding of your perspective on an area that's very controversial, Father, and difficult in our time and really is in some sense the one of the pinnacle issues, Father, in the what are called culture wars. But Father, we don't want to be just in a culture war. We want to serve your kingdom in exactly the manner in which you would have us to serve you. And we need a biblical understanding of things as we find them in the world. And we thank you for the privilege of having an accurate assessment of the things we face in life through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Romans 1, 26 is where we're going to be. Uh, the Roman... Uh, scholar and orator Cicero once wrote, he said, nature has given us faint sparks of knowledge and we extinguish them by our immoralities. The overthrow of knowledge and understanding by the power of sin is the first major theological point in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, which is the great theological book of the New Testament. But Cicero is just beginning to perceive in a vague sort of way by observing life, the Bible explains with perfect clarity. God has endowed man with knowledge, with the truth, but man suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. That's what verse 18 said, if you recall. The truth about God is literally pushed out of people's minds or shoved into some sort of closet of the mind where the door is never opened. And the knowledge all men have is clear enough so that no human being can plead ignorance. Indeed, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 23, the knowledge of God is so evident in man that everyone is, and these are his words, without excuse. So we are looking at a part of the Bible which explains the human condition. Why we find men the way we find them. Why man does what he does. And it's so obvious, just from life, that mankind is this wonderful, marvelous creation, this thing that exists in the world, you and I, possessing true greatness and incredible potentiality. And it is also true that he is wretched, that mankind is lost and confused and wicked and far short of what we could be. And we see that all around us every day, even in ourselves. When you look at the big picture, man's unique gifts and his seemingly, seemingly compulsive desire to abuse and misuse those gifts, it really just is staggering. One can't help but see humanity as part of a great 
story, a, a tragedy. And to say that the story of man is just all chance and biology is, is just ridiculous because it's so obvious that there's so much more to us and what's going on with us. And that we should have such a capacity to see, to see it as ridiculous because it is ridiculous to even think that way, that we're just biology and chance coming into all that we are and, and do. That we even have the capacity to see that as stupid is, shows us how inadequate modern scientific explanations for who we are and why we are the way we are um, exist. And frankly, there are not a lot of explanations out there that are possibles about why humanity is what it is. If you just go down the list and grab every possible explanation for why mankind is what it is, there aren't a lot of choices. Not a lot at all, really. Philosophies can try to label us, but they don't explain us. They don't even really try to. Religions either skip it, where we came from and why we are the way we are, altogether, they just don't deal with it, or they offer fantastic and, and foolish myths and fairy tales. Only the Bible, and all my searching through all the belief systems of life down through the ages and all, the, and all in our own age, only the Bible offers a really satisfying explanation, something that accounts for all the data that explains our greatness, and our wretchedness. And the great philosopher Pascal said that any true philosophy has to explain the greatness of man and his wretchedness. If it can't explain both those things, it isn't valid. And he's totally right. And only the Bible that I've ever found explains both things. We are, in fact, beings made in the image of God. That accounts for our greatness. We are persons with rational, aesthetic, moral, and spiritual capacities, unlike any other beings on our planet. By far, vastly different, utterly unique, in creation. And we are rebels, using our gifts to defy the giver and to chart our own course in the own way we want to go, making up the rules as we go. And so we are cut off from him, the creator, suppressing, verse 18 of Romans 1 says, in our wickedness, the truth about him, pushing it out of our conscious minds, suppressing the fact that he is holy and just, that he is the creator and judge that our beginning and frankly he is our beginning and he's the one we have to face at the end when we meet him all of that is suppressed knowledge and as we have seen in recent weeks the descent of man his fall from grace his devolution follows a definite pattern and starting with verse 21 we saw that it says they knew God talking about humanity but they refused to acknowledge him to honor him Secondly, they were not thankful. They were in, ungrateful for God's goodness to them. Now, this has very direct results. And in verse 21, he starts explaining that. They began speculating foolishly. They started making things up, guessing, or substituting their own answers for the truth. Their minds became senseless and darkened. And then in verse 22, he says, professing, professing to be wise, they became fools. By denying God his due, great intellects use their minds for foolish ends, coming up with ridiculous alternative explanations and pouring tons of time and energy and thought into these ridiculous alternative explanations. Verse 23, instead of worshiping the eternal God, they preferred idols patterned after mortal man and beasts. And that is the human condition. As we find it, apart from God's grace, apart from his saving activity. 
But Paul began this whole discussion by asserting that mankind stands under God's wrath. His wrath has targeted, again, verse 18, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And one aspect of God's wrath that is still current, not future, but exists now, and that is not waiting, not waiting for the great day of judgment, is God's decision to just let go. Three times it says, from verse 24 to verse 32, God gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. We looked at that last week. Impurity is a general term talking about a sexuality that is out of bounds. It is only fitting that men who hate God and and specifically hate him because he's holy. I mean, that's really what people hate about him. That they should hate purity as well. That that should be something that they don't cherish or honor. That in their hearts they should desire, in fact, be driven to pervert and to twist and to violate God's last and most wonderful gift, marriage. Uh, a man and a woman partnering together in faithful and devoted love to becoming one, as the very beginning of the Bible explains to us. One heart and one soul and one body, one flesh. So of all things that needed to be trashed, that needed to be trashed. I read the other day that 86% of all sexual things that happen on network television are between unmarried people. And there's a reason for that. Because the value of it as entertainment is that it is evil. That's why it's a pleasure to watch. It's an obscene gesture in the face of God. It's a defiant, and that is, defiance is the pleasure. To defy him in the, in the sacred gift that he gave us is to have a joy, a kick. And it's often true in life. People who are very sexually active before marriage and then they get married often find that there's something missing all of a sudden in their romantic life. Something intangible, but it's sort of dropped out. And people like Hugh Hefner would say that marriage itself is inherently less fun. Why? There's a reason. It's that the thrill of sin is pulled out because it's become an honorable thing. When people tie their pleasures to sin then the, the kick of rebellion is part of the fun, and they train themselves that way. So when you drop wickedness out of fun, then all of a sudden, that innocent pleasures become, in some sense, dull, because the kick of wickedness isn't there anymore. Normal pleasures seem flat by comparison. That's how insidious sin is, and that's why television and movies and music is so filthy, because it, to have the same kick and pleasure, they have to put in... Trash. And of course, it's trashy people putting all that in. And we, we enjoy it too. That also uh, is one of the glories of the new birth, by the way, uh, when you become a Christian, that God grants us a capacity to actually delight in goodness and virtue and enjoy it as fully as sinners enjoy sin. That's one of the blessings of the new birth. It's sad when Christians go back to, a, to the kick of the world when God has given us such a wonderful capacity to enjoy virtue because we do have that. Now, on another note related to this, I I always find language really fascinating. Why do people use sexual terms as an extreme form of verbal abuse? Why do they do that? Ever thought about that? Who started that? Where does that come from? 
some pagan one time was emailing me and he asked me uh, why Christians get upset at pe people using sexual terms in conversation. And pagans are idiots frequently. So, uh, I mean, they really are. <laughs> Professing to be wise, they become fools. No, I'm serious. Because he's asking me why we're offended. And, and this is his argument. He says, you guys believe that God created sexuality, right? So why are you offended when, when people use those words? What, what bothers you about it? And I'm sitting there going, bothers me? Why do you pagans, if you believe, you're the ones that believe that all sensuality is good and pleasurable, right? That there are no rules. That it's all good. Why, why is it that if you believe it's good and pleasurable, why is it that you connect it with anger and hostility and violence? I don't do that. To me, it's a sacred, beautiful thing. You're the one trashing it with your language. Why do you do that? And, and there's no explanation they have for that. I, I don't know. I know. They don't know. It's such a funny thing. I said, I don't use that language because God's gift is precious and sacred. So I don't use something precious as a form of assault. Why would I do that? Baseball! Baseball! You! <laughs> I love baseball, so I'm going to accuse you know. You batter you. I don't know. It's like a weird thing. Why pick that to verbally assault somebody? You know, some pleasure, right? Unless it's something that has to be twisted because it's good. Talk about futile speculations and dark hearts. Clueless. I mean, it's just clueless the way people think. I told the guy, I said, you're the one that trashes it every time you're mad. I don't do that. I find appropriate things to say, like, rats. <laughs> well, we're supposed to look at the second use of the phrase, God gave them over today. And again, he refers to an aspect of human sexuality. Why such an emphasis on this? Because the first two uses of this God gave them over thing focus really exclusively on these sexual issues. It's because it's God's greatest gift. It's his last gift in creation. The last thing he did was make a, a woman for the man and invent marriage. That was the pinnacle of creation. So that has to be corrupted. Verse 26. For this reason, because they turned to idolatry, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is such a big issue. How much time do we have? None. Okay, good. It's, it's unbelievable, really, the advancement and the viciousness and the unrelenting advancement of the homosexual movement in our culture. It makes perfect sense because if you're talking about culture wars or who's going to win or what, who's going to be on top, who's going to decide what culture should be, because if that is accepted, once that is accepted, there is no going back, and they know that. People that have no interest in that as a lifestyle or even as wanting to be involved in it in any way support it because they know that once that is accepted, Christianity will always be the minority, crushed, forsaken, past tense reality. They know that. That's why it's so important. That's why it stands alone in Paul's argument here. Impurity, which we talked about last time, which was the first thing he talked about, is a violation of God's order. It's a trashing of his gifts. It's a dishonoring of the human body. That's what he said in the first section there. 
verse 24. But what is different about homosexuality is that it demonstrates how far mankind will take and tolerate that impurity. And the key word there, the, key, the two key words there, one is natural, and the other one is the word exchange. I mean, those are really important words. Last week we said that um, there was a close connection all through human history between idolatry and the sin of fornication. There, there is a, always a connection, and the ancients recognized that too. Impurity, in verse 24, comes because, verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's this downward, parallel focus, cutting, off, cutting God out of the picture and focusing strictly on what is down here. They exchanged God for idols, and in that exchange... They lost purity and became impure in their hearts in these other matters, even to the point, now Paul says, of unnatural acts. So this second use of God gave them over section shows a progression of decay, corrupting what is natural first and then pushing that corruption into things that are not natural. It's such a simple argument and it's so obviously so. Now, I know that modern secular psychology says that this is not unnatural, that the things described in verse 26 and verse 27 are perfectly natural. Well, that's just an expression of verses 21 and 22. Futile speculations, dark, foolish hearts. Professing to be wise, they became fools. By the way, and I don't have time to get into it, but the story of how the American Psychiatric Association changed from labeling homosexuality as abnormal and a mental illness. And they have this thing called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, which is just a list of problems people have. That used to be one of the main things in there. Then they had this vote a number of years ago to take it out. So now they say it's normal. How that vote came about, the intimidation and political pressure and threats that were involved in that and sit-ins and all this stuff. And um, it wasn't like they all, through research, decided that this needed to be changed. It was done entirely in a forceful, uh, intimidating sort of way, politically. And a lot of psychologists still resist uh, that decision that was made to drop that from that category of mental illness. But anyway, needless to say, psychiatric psychiatry is not the branch of learning that needs to be consulted on the issue of homosexuality. That's the wrong field. You know who you should talk to if you want to know if homosexuality is natural or not? Is, is a plumber. I'm totally serious. You should talk to plumbers about whether it's natural or not. Plumbers work all day with fixtures that have male and female parts. And if you ask a plumber if he can do his job with only male parts or only female parts, he will tell you, no, it doesn't work. I'm serious. That's, that's, how, that's the person to talk to about whether homosexuality is natural. I'm talking about natural. Okay, I'm not talking about sin yet. Just natural. Is it natural? The question of natural isn't a question of behavior. That's a psychiatric thing. It's a question of design. That's whether it's natural or not. And plumbers know all about that. Homosexuality is obviously unnatural. Obviously unnatural. So obviously so that only somebody suppressing the truth, only a person that is a professing to be wise and is really a fool, could think otherwise. Really. Well, aren't people born that way? Do you know how much scientific evidence there is that people are born that way? Zero. Zero. 
Oh, but I read in the paper this guy found a, a gene that makes people homosexual. There's a homosexual gene in people. I saw that too. It was on the front page of all the papers. And a few years ago, people that know their stuff, and everybody in the scientific community knows this, checked out that guy's research. In fact, that guy turned out to be, that was Dr. Hamer, who worked for the National Cancer Institute. Turns out he himself was a homosexual and had a vested interest in finding this homosexual gene. And of course, when people present papers like that or knowledge or discoveries, other people are supposed to come and verify them to see whether they're true or not. So they do, they do more extensive testing in the same field. Well, people have done that and found out, guess what? The guy was totally out to lunch. I mean, there's no basis for this supposedly homosexual gene. And, you know, people that know medical research and, and psychiatric research and all that stuff know it's not true. They know there's no gene. And how do they know that? Because identical twins have the exact same genes, right? And amongst identical twins, there, is, there would always be the same orientation sexually if that was a genetic thing. And it's mostly not. It's very, I mean, it's very common for there not to be the same orientation. So it would always be the same if it was genetic, and it's not. Everybody knows that. That was, it knows the literature. Well, that is not to say that people can't have these feelings early in life, because some people do. But some people have all kinds of unnatural and disturbing feelings early in life. There's all kinds of things that people feel young. There's children that torture cats to death and enjoy it. I mean, there's all kinds of twisted and perverse things in people's hearts when they're young. Every human being is born to a fallen race, a cursed race of people in rebellion against God. And that inherent, what they call, you know, natural, original sin or whatever, is bound up in us. Wickedness is born in us. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He was born that way. We all have that nature. And this is just one expression of that Wickedness, perversion, twisting. Heterosexual impurity can be felt at a very young age as well, depending on a variety of factors, environmental and otherwise. That's why I plead with parents to guard their children's innocence because that is so easily corrupted and violated very early. Promiscuity isn't natural either by God's design. It isn't. Human sexuality is explained in Genesis chapter 2. Let me just read for you parts of that. Uh, Genesis 2.18, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable for him. That means corresponding to him, different but related to him. Verse 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, is the Hebrew word, because she was taken out of Ish, man. And Ah, that A-H sort of ending on Hebrew words, is sort of an emphasis. She's like man plus. You know, there's Ish and then there's Isha. That kind of thing. And uh, that is, we actually call each other that at home sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but I won't tell you when. That is the foundation text. That is the foundation text for all biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality and divorce. Jesus always goes back to Genesis chapter 2 to answer marriage questions and issues related to this. Always. And when people say that God, when people make the joke and they say God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's pretty clever, but it actually, it's really profoundly true. I mean, the design 
of human sexuality, of gender, in, is all God-given. God made two genders, alike in their humanity and in their spiritual nature, but different as well, so that they can complement each other. They are even made for different purposes. So to approve of homosexuality, you have to deny God's created purpose for men and women and their unique roles. Gender egalitarianism, the feminism, always precedes, always precedes a, a tolerance of homosexuality. Denying the uniqueness of men and women is an error. It's, an it's another one of those really obvious errors, but it's something that, of course, our culture does because it's politically proper to do so. But once you make that error, that men and women are not different, logic takes you to see it that there's no big deal in approving of homosexuality. There's, it's because what? We're not different anyway, right? So who cares how we pair up? In fact, over the past two decades, numerous evangelical women feminists, what they call evangelical feminists, who began their spiritual scholarship or whatever, arguing that we need to remove or eliminate the biblical model of male headship in the home, many of these women end up approving of homosexuality also within a few years down the line because they go together. Once you deny the difference between men and women and the complementary nature of creation, there's no reason to disparage homosexuality anymore. They're all, it's all tied together. Unravel one piece and the whole cloth starts to unravel. That's why evangelicals are duty-bound to hold fast to every single bit of this. Because if you let go of one part, the whole thing comes apart. Always happens that way. It happened before, it'll happen again. People always think they can break this rule or wink at breaking that standard and it will be okay. But it never works. And I watch Christians do it all the time. So when Leviticus 18.22 says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female, it is an abomination. That's just the truth. An abomination, by the way, is a particular level of Old Testament sin that has severe societal consequences. If you just go through the Old Testament, find the word abomination, and look at all the things connected to that, they're all socially destructive sins. Dishonest business practices is called an abomination. Having an unjust scale is an abomination because that breaks trust in the community. It starts to tend towards disorder in the community. Abominations. That's why this cultural battle is so important. Because abominations destroy the social fabric and because once they are accepted, then the truth is lost forever. The whole argument has shifted from tolerance in our cultural battle, they used to say, tolerate us. Now it's, no, you've got to accept us or else. So now they call sodomy a civil rights issue. And even free speech, which used to be the sacred right, has to give way to the right to practice unnatural lusts. Not just practice them, but do so without criticism. The equation of sin and civil rights is the final step enforcing the truth out of what they call the public square, the public arena of discourse. You're not allowed to discuss that anymore because now you're violating people's civil rights. So the, end of the, it's, the conversation is over when you bring civil rights. If everybody accepts the idea that this is a civil rights question, that ends the conversation. That's why this has become a cause celeb in so many circles. Once this battle is won on behalf of sodomy, victory in the so-called culture war can be declared. Whatever else happens, the victory is won. 
However much longer it takes, the victory is already decided. Because after that, God's people must forever accept the position of an out-of-step, not-to-be-heard, freakish minority. That's simply the way it's already working out, but that's the way it will be. How many of you have heard, have heard of the name Matthew Shepard? Anybody ever hear of that? Raise your hand if you've heard that, Matthew Shepard. Okay, now I'm going to tell you who he is, and then tell me if you've heard of him again. He's the young man that was murdered in Colorado. He was a homosexual young man that was murdered in Colorado by two criminals. And they blamed Focus on the Family for it, for some reason. But... Uh, now, who's, who's heard of him? Okay how, many, okay, how many people in here have heard the name Jesse Durkheising? Okay, a lot less, maybe three or four. All of you have heard of Matthew Shepard. Jesse was killed about the same time that Matthew Shepard was killed. He was murdered by two homosexual men. Not intentionally murdered. He died because they uh, abused him for hours and hours and hours and tied him up in such a twisted and weird way that while they were out having lunch after abusing him for hours, his 13-year-old boy, he died. Never made it to the national press. Never discussed. Deliberately not discussed in the mainstream media. Why? Because the Matthew Shepard case was building a social argument for the acceptance of homosexuality and teaching it in schools. And if this story had come out at the same time, people might have said, well, you know, maybe we need to rethink this thing about kids and people with that orientation. And so it was deliberately shunned from the media. They've done studies on this. In fact, even a couple of very left-wing um, reporters are, are pretty shocked at how this was deliberately kept down. The idea is to so dominate the laws and the media and the schools that adherence to biblical truth will make any Christian look like a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, that's the purpose. That's the idea. And if God wills that, that's okay. We have to accept that will be our position in society. The church started in that position and did okay. So it's all right to be the down-and-outer minority group. But the gospel will still have its way according to the will of the Spirit as he blows as he will. So we don't have to fear that happening, except for the general cultural decline, of course. But it is a sad thing to see a great nation submit to wickedness and enshrine wickedness in law. We did that before, you know, and we were judged by God with a civil war. Abraham Lincoln said that. We were judged by God with a civil war because of enshrining wickedness, unabated un slavery into law. But for us, it is extremely important that we never compromise our convictions as Christians. And I have to say, it is equally important that we never cease to love those trapped in sin. Any sin. This one too. God doesn't feel any differently about those that have been given over to impurity in verse 24 than he does who have been given over to degrading passions in verse 26. He doesn't feel any differently about those two groups of people or all the other sins listed in verse 29 through verse 32. And we Christians really chafe at being labeled, you know, this new word they've invented, homophobic, which means we have some kind of irrational, weird fear of homosexuals. We chafe at that, but we must never let it be said of our biblical convictions that we're homophobic, or even our basic insistence on this lifestyle being unnatural. We can't let that be said about us. But frankly, some Christians act like it's true, that we really do. We put it in some different category somehow, and it's, it's too weird. Somehow we're more angry about that than other things, and that's not really right. We're commanded to love everybody. So I don't allow myself to be labeled homophobic by anybody. I don't let people call me that without having to sit down with me and discuss it. Because I'm not. Some of you folks don't know anything about my background, but when I was a brand new Christian, 
how was old was I, like 18 or 19 or something, I was going to film school in Hollywood, and guess who was there with me? <laughs> um, still pretty fresh from a small town in the Midwest where I had never even heard of people that had certain dispositions in life. I mean, really, that was something that was just never talked about, ever, where I grew up. And suddenly I was plunged, 18 years old, into a culture of very different people. And I was shocked at least three times a week <laughs> by some new thing that I'd never heard of before that people did or whatever. All sorts of weird things. I mean, not just this. And a, and a, and a, a friend at this school that I had made invited me to go to church. With in fact, he was one of the people that was most instrumental in my becoming a Christian. He walked up to me in the hall in school one day and said, are you a born-again Christian? And I said, what is that? I mean, I never heard that term, born again, being used related to Christianity. And he invited me to church, and I went to church with him in the Grace Community Church, and I started pouring myself into the Bible, and after a few months, I became a Christian. Well, to make a long story short, this man, the same man that led me to the church, later revealed to me, after we were very good friends, that he was a homosexual, that he struggled with this sin, that this was an issue in his life. And to make a very long story short, I ended up, ended up leading a Bible study with about six to eight homosexuals and about four to five straight people in it. So it was a predominantly homosexual Bible study. And the reason we did that ourselves is because we all went to school on Friday nights at this film school and all the Bible studies from our church were on Friday nights. So we had a Saturday night Bible study and we started ourselves because we couldn't go to the regular ones. So once something got started, all these other people just sort of started gravitating to this place where they would be understood, you know. Not that I understood it. But we had everything in this group, and I, and I learned a lot about people in dealing with this whole subject. One young man that was in our group literally sold himself for years on Santa Monica Boulevard, and I learned all about that part of Hollywood. On Sunset Boulevard, you can buy women. On Santa Monica Boulevard, you can buy men. At least that's the way it was in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, twisted, horrible stuff, he, he told me about. Another young man, a former Army Ranger, worked with me at Hollywood Film Company where I worked and um, he was one of several Christian friends we had there. And one day he had an emotional breakdown at work. I mean, he literally lost the ability to function. He like was out of control, not bouncing around, just stupefied, super emotional. And he couldn't do anything. And a few of us just left work and took him home and sat him down and tried to make him okay. You know, we couldn't figure out what happened. And finally, after hours, he started to kind of come around. And I asked, I asked my friend, I said, what happened? And he said, I asked God to show me my sin. And it hit him so hard how decadent his life had been that he was completely blown away by it. So in this group, there were all sorts of men and women, as diverse as any people in life. There were certain common factors regarding their family life, which to this day convinces me that what people believe is a condition from birth is actually really a direction that the sin nature takes sometimes due to certain experiences and relationships in childhood. I do believe that, just from my own observation. But this lifestyle becomes a way of numbing pain, and um, like most addictions, and it becomes a consuming desire, very consuming. It involves a choice, absolutely, but frankly, human sexuality is not a very simple thing, and there's all kinds of deviations and directions that it can go. And to say it's this or that is really a big mistake, because there's way more people that are in the middle than there are exclusively homosexual. There's very few people that are exclusively homosexual. 
You could not be born that way and then suddenly realize at 25 that that's what you are. It just couldn't happen. That's not the same as a heterosexual experience. You don't wake up when you're 25 and go, oh, I, I am a heterosexual. That doesn't happen. Holly Hughes, I don't know if you know who Holly Hughes is. She's one of those um, totally de degenerate, obscene performance artists that makes a living off your tax dollars. <laughs> um, she gets funded by the National Endowment for the Arts to do really perverse things on a stage and, and yell at people. That's what she does for a living. And um, she's a homosexual. And one thing about Holly, though, is that she really speaks her own mind and she's not tied into a movement. She's willing to say things that the movement does not approve of because she's got her own head, you know. She's just, you can't stop her from flapping her gums, frankly. But in the LA Times, she had this full long interview a number of years ago and she said this, um, talking about her latest theatrical thing, I won't call it work, but, or work of art or anything, but she says, this piece comes out of a desire to make my father understand the choices I made about being a lesbian and being an artist, she says. I actually see being a lesbian as being a choice the right wing is on to something when they talk about that. People's sexuality comes out a lot of complicated sources, but there is choice in it. And she's exactly right. It is complicated, and there is choice in it. She describes it very well. And she's right. Another common argument from homosexuals that I've heard them say to me is, who would choose this lifestyle that everyone despises and it makes you a social outcast and a social pariah? Who would choose to be miserable? There's all kinds of people that choose to be miserable. Drug addicts choose to be miserable. Drunks choose to be miserable. People of all kinds of weird practices choose to be miserable. People choose to be homeless. They choose all kinds of stuff that's self-destructive. All kinds of people do that. Some people choose to frequent prostitutes, even though they know that disease is down the line for them somewhere, but they choose to do it anyway. It's a driven compulsion. Our sinful bent can lead us down dark, self-destructive paths in many ways. This is just one way. Well, the experience of homosexuality from the homosexual's point of view, it's a myth that it's the same as heterosexuality. It's not, and it's, it's very different. In fact, the compulsive, compulsive nature of it is, is probably one of the strongest differences. It's so overwhelming. Anyway, my own experience, I watched as all, all these really dear people really struggled to break free of this particular kind of sin. Some didn't make it. Some found a way to control it and just keep it kind of under wraps and go on and live their Christian life as best they could. Some got completely delivered from it. I mean, completely. In fact, the guy that sold himself down in Santa Monica Boulevard is still, after many years, a married daddy, happily married man, just totally great, doing great. And I loved all these people. They were good friends. And on occasion, I even shared my apartment with them when they needed a place to stay. And no, nothing weird happened. And they're just people, you know? <laughs> so the homosexual is just another person that needs Jesus. But very much like the drug addict or the alcoholic or the man addicted to all sorts of other perversions, it's hard for some people to let go of habitual sinful lifestyles. It's just hard. People will try to confuse you with words, they will say this is natural because it is an orientation. Don't let anybody ever say that to you without an explanation. Don't let anybody fool you with rhetoric about an orientation. You always have to say, what is an orientation? You have to say that. What do you mean when you say the word orientation? The day that word entered law and language was disastrous for our culture because they never explain what it means. 
always ask, what does orientation mean? What does it mean? It means a strong inclination or bent towards something. In fact, I looked it up in the dictionary, and the dictionary said it is to be intellectually or emotionally directed. That makes sense. So a sexual orientation means to be sexually directed in a certain way, right? That's pretty simple. Now, that's a very simple idea, but that very term, when you define it, overthrows the idea that simply having an orientation is natural or healthy. Because, you see, once you realize by design, the plumber thing, that homosexuality is deviant and unnatural, you can never cover that up with the idea of orientation. Let me explain that a little bit better. People are sexually directed in all sorts of different ways. In other words, there's many orientations, are there not? If you don't know that, that's good. Just stay where you don't know it. But it's true. Once you define natural as directed, once you've done that, whatever you feel drawn to is natural. That's a problem because you've opened a drawer that you can't close. And all kinds of monsters have their feet and their hands inside the door once you've opened that. Once you've defined directed as natural. Think about it. Because by what standard does one condemn the way anyone then is directed sexually? Some people are directed to children. Some people are directed to beasts. Some people are directed to defecation. Some people are directed to violence. All kinds of other things that I can't even mention, and I'm sorry I mentioned those. In fact, my good friend who used to work at Santa Monica Boulevard told me all this stuff about his life. I mean, just unbelievable. I'm just sitting there, my tongue hanging out, my jaw on the floor, stunned. And then he said, and I, and I can't tell you the bad stuff. You know? But this is why in gay pride parades, for example, they have to let Nambla march. That's a pedophile group. And they march in the same parades when the mayor is in there and the governor's there and all of that stuff. Because they have people steeped in perverse violence and self-mutilation in those parades. Why? How can they not have them? Because the word orientation holds the door open. Because what is natural is what's directed. And if you're directed that way, how can I say it's not natural? It feels natural to me, they would say. Natural is defined as whatever you're directed to. That's why Hannibal Lecter and the Marquis de Sade are heroes in Hollywood this last year. Heroes! They're characters who embrace what they are directed towards. That's why. That's why they're so popular. Well, God in his wrath gave humanity over to do its own thing, and that is the result, and we're living in it. And I will tell you, it's only going to get worse. I promise you. The door is being pushed open and the hands and the feet are in there. It will never close unless God does an incredible miracle in this country. And it will only be pushed further open because sin always has to go farther. Always has to. Once something becomes accepted, the natural inclination of sin to push the envelope, just like Hollywood pushes the envelope every year and what they show us and talk about and do, it has to go farther for the same kick. 
Once something is approved, what's the rebellious going to do? They have to rebel at the next level. It has to get more degraded, more twisted, and it will. I promise you it will. It already is. It's just not all quite public yet, although it's heading that way. So degrading passions, indecent acts, it's all part of God's wrath. A lot of people ask about verse 27. It says, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And right away people think of AIDS, but that's obviously not it because that wasn't around when Paul was writing this, you know. And it's true that other diseases ravaged homosexuals more easily than other people because they do things, it's the plumbing problem, they do things that allow for the transfer of illness more readily. But I rather think that what Paul is talking about is this compulsive, degraded existence itself. The punishment in their own persons is the fact that they are given over to this lifestyle. And the more you know about the lifestyle, the more you see that it's, it is its own punishment. So Paul is writing this in a day when some philosophers claimed, and, and it was pretty well accepted among the Greeks and the Romans of his day, it was the dominant cultural idea that this is not only normal, it's actually superior. It's a superior form of love, especially between men, because women were inferior beings. So the highest love a man could have would be for another man, because well, he wants to be involved with women, you know. Women, women, as Aristotle said, are deformed men. But whatever is claimed, I don't believe that, Aristotle believes that. That wasn't me. Whatever is claimed, all such wickedness uh, is an aspect of man's rebellion and God's judgment. Which just makes you realize once again how marvelous and how great the love of Christ is to deliver us from these things and um, to give us hope in his grace and his forgiveness. I just want to close with a last... Verse 9. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. God is so powerful that he can wash and cleanse and restore and heal anybody. Anybody of anything. And he, and he did it then and he does it today all the time. Don't lose confidence in that because it's true. Well, it's kind of late so we're not going to sing the last song. Let's just pray, okay? Father, we thank you for our time and I thank you for the clarity of your word. And we just ask that you would help us to know what to say and have hearts that are just full of the same love that Jesus would have for anybody, Lord. And that while we might feel the need to combat these things as they try to dominate our culture, we must never let that turn into anger or hatred towards people that really have so little awareness of what the truth is, having pushed it out of their hearts and minds. Give us a grace to be gracious. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.